And finally, at that time, no, no, no. I'm, wait. Done. I'm done. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, yes, the, the, the finally is a rhetorical finally and not the biblical finally. Yes. So, uh, uh, one, one time a Chinese comedian named Zhou Wang uh, shared an interesting experience. He's not a Christian, but he shared an interesting interaction he had with a uh, knock on a door evangelist. Someone knocked on a door, he opened and they said, Hey, Joe, you know, uh, you know you're going to hell, right? Uh, uh, unless you accept Jesus Christ as your savior right now. And then he said, well, but there are millions of people in China who have never heard of Jesus Christ. Are they going to hell? And they eventually said, no, I don't think so, uh, because they never heard of him. And then Joe said, well, why did you tell me then? <laughs> <laughs> now, the, 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 the humor aside, he does make a valid point. Uh, the 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 kind the kind of gospel that is that I was taught to and uh, to be what evangelism is the kind of gospel that says hey in case you are going to run into an accident or worse being raptured sometime soon you need Jesus right now to pluck you from hell and go straight to heaven I mean what if you go out there and get hit by a car if you don't, right? At least that's the style of evangelism that I was taught to share. Now, we see Joe makes a good point. Uh, what happens to those who have never heard, which are the majority of people in this world. And uh, more, more importantly, because this gospel sounds so bad that we somehow need to pepper it, lead into an introduction to it with all kinds of fun events. And I spend years, days and hours and years doing those, doing those things in my undergrad college campus ministry and in the mainline church that I used to go to. The, what evangelism means in that kind of setting usually is a huge game night uh, peppered with free meals, fun activities throughout the day so that the people come, come here, have a lot of fun, and maybe, just maybe through all that fun, we find a chance, a slimmering chance to say, hey, just so you know, you're still going to hell. So, uh, so you want to accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Now, I mean, you, you can see Jesus does his ministry very differently. The 72 goes into the village, and not only do they uh, cook up free food for others, they eat their food and say, hey, kingdom, kingdom of God has come near you. So clearly then, I think we need a more holistic, a m more mature understanding of what the gospel is, other than you as an individual are going to hell, and we need to pluck you from it. On the other hand, however, those who do think more carefully about this kind of issues struggle with a different kind of problem, the problem that they have often lost the passion to share the gospel in the process of thinking about it critically. And this crowd I have run into quite often in divinity school. Of course, you would expect people there spend a lot of time thinking about the gospel, thinking about what it is. And one time I had this uh, literal conversation with a divinity school, divinity school student. He's, you know, white American, uh, despite having never been, having never left America or having never been on a mission trip, he felt very qualified to comment on the missionaries. And he once said, yeah, I think all missionaries are imperialists. And I said, well, I think some of them were, but not all of them, certainly. 
And he said, no, I think all of them are. Uh, I mean, if you go and tell people what the truth is, I think you're just being imperialistic. And I was like, well, so, so what is not imperialistic then? Is that, oh, no, you should tell people like uh, whatever the truth they think is fine. Uh, well, not to mention the logical inconsistency there because he's, just, he's using moral, moral relativism as an absolute command. Uh, but not, not, but the, not to mention that, I s of course, he's a bit, a bit of an epitome there. But we have seen how, on the other hand, those who do spend, uh, read a lot of theologians, who do spend a lot of time thinking about it, can often uncritically accept some of the uh, premises that our intellectual culture has given them and in a process lost the passion to share or e even even think that we should not share. So that is the dilemma of today. Those who understand it do not evangelize and those who evangelize do not understand. But, uh, but I think this passage that we have just read, Jesus standing out of 72, can give us quite a different kind of picture. When we read how Jesus does evangelism, we see several very sharp contrasts here. One I have already mentioned, the people who go into the field to proclaim the good news are so confident that the news is good that they no longer need to build any fun lead-ups to it or prepare a mood for it. Now, the king, when they go into the village, the kingdom of God, that is indeed preceded by peace and healing. Uh, but the news itself, they do, not, they do not beg people to come. They do not say, hey, if you don't accept it, what happens what happen if, if you know, Romans come and you die, right? And, and what, uh, what gives them this kind of confidence? What gives them this assurance that, yes, I am sharing a good news? I think if we look at the, actual, the answer, I think, is when we look at the actual message that they are sharing, the, the one-sentence summary of what they were sharing is that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, we may think that's just another way of saying, I need to pluck your soul away, but when we truly think about it, the kingdom of God is such a, a much broader concept because, well, it's a kingdom. A kingdom covers so many aspects. And when I was being taught to share the gospel in a way that I have just that have just described to you, of saving, of plucking individual souls from hell, and and that's the end of the story. I always felt a bit of a lack of resonance there, and I did not know why until I read this passage. I realized that wait a second, that's not how I became a Christian in the first place. And if that's not how the gospel spoke to me, then how am I supposed to let this kind of gospel spoke to others? Now, you, know, you may know, I grew up as an atheist in China, as uh, about 75% of Chinese uh, are. And I was taught that, uh, I was taught that an atheist worldview is the only correct worldview, that there, are, there is no God, there is nothing transcendent beyond what we have here. Yet, I still remember to this day very vividly the first time that I felt my atheist world shaken, the first time that I realized that there must be a God in this world. And that was in the year 2009. I was towards the end of my high school. And at that time, uh, there was a lot of uh, um, forced demolition of people's houses going on in various cities, including my hometown in China. 
The reason being that uh, local real estate entrepreneurs join hands with the governmental power to clear out vast swath of land to build a new commercial housing on top to, to sell it to people. The combination of uh, corporate capitalism and state authoritarianism led to absolutely brutal results. In my neighborhood, one lady refused to give up her home because, well, she has a strong emotional attachment to it and the compensation is not nearly enough. And uh, despite uh, her protest, uh, as the protest went on, the government got lost their patience and one day they lured the city out of the house and bulldozed the entire place down. Just like that. And she got a zero compensation because she made th things difficult for the joint power of corporate and state. And as a last protest, as her, uh, her last attempt to, uh, to go out with a bang, she set herself on fire in front of the government's building as a protest. She has lost everything. She has lost everything. And she, said she decided that the way she loses her life will be a public demonstration of the evil that was done to her. And I remember, uh, fortunately, my, my high school uh, good friend, uh, his father was the journalist who went to interview the government official who oversaw this demolition. And uh, although this was not printed, I know the story because he told me, the journalist went to ask the government official, how can you do this evil thing? You know, people are dead because of your greed. To which the government official replied, in a completely nonchalant and uh, innocent manner, uh, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, if you want to develop economy, you're going to kill a few people. That's what's wrong with that. Like, he genuinely did not see anything wrong with it. He thinks that a person's life is meaningful only insofar as it can help boost up national economy, as it can boost up GDP. And I remember being in high school extremely angered, sad, lost, all kinds of emotions. I want to be able to say that an individual life is precious, is so incredibly precious that even the power of mega corporations and state authoritarianism join hand cannot overtake. But I struggle to find what is, what a foundation I can find to support that kind of view. In an enclosed naturalistic system, where am I going to find a theoretical foundation for that? If we are purely the result of time plus matter plus chance, what's the, without an imprint of God, an image of God, how do I say that? That, yeah, individual life is valuable because we, you know, we kind of evolved from this chain of, uh, uh, ch chain of events, and that kind of doesn't likely to happen, no? That doesn't sound quite powerful enough to me. And I want to say, no, experientially speaking, if you do too much of this bad thing, people will revolt against you. That's the experiential angle, and in many sense, the Confucian angle. But that doesn't come up as powerful to me either, because if, by the time they have learned their lesson, if they ever learn, now too many innocent lives would have already been lost. So what is there? And I remember sitting in my high school classroom, looking out to the sky, and I was thinking, well, I bet there must be a god. I bet there must be a God, because that's the only way I can think of that can justify what I'm feeling right now. That individual life must be sacred. That life must be holy. And then, years later, I read Luke 10, the kingdom of God has come near. And immediately it made sense to me that, yes, what was I feeling as a high school kid was 
an example of the kingdom of God has come near, or that a kingdom of God must come near in order for the redemption of this world. What I was grasping onto is that in an enclosed world, in a, what we call an imminent world, a light from a higher realm is piercing through, is breaking through it and coming and provides a foundation, a true foundation for the value, the absolute value of each individual lives. And, uh, if we, and that kind of understanding of the gospel, if we look to the world, if, I mean, if we look a little bit beyond the context in which we might have been very familiar with, we immediately find that that is the kind of gospel that has grasped the, the imagination of millions. In the past two weeks, I was very fortunate to get to know a, an, another student at Duke, an international student from Hong Kong. And uh, he, he was an eyewitness and a frontline protester uh, during the recent Hong Kong pro-democracy protests. And uh, what the story he told me was absolutely breathtaking. Little did, of course, in, we usually don't hear too much about the role of the church in those protests, in fighting for the Hong Kong's legal independence, in rejecting the encroachment of an authoritarian regime. But man, the church did a lot. On the first night of the protest, and uh, this was uh, given by two eyewitness accounts, on the first night of the protest, when the government held out strong and refused to give in to any demands of the, um, of the demonstrators, the momentum of the demonstration reached an all-time low. There was, people were just thinking of going home. But then, a church group showed up. The church group, uh, that the, the Methodist church that's associated with the Chongzi Theological Seminary, they showed up and they did an overnight prayer vigil and a hymn singing session. And the hymn there is called Hallelujah to the Lord. It's simple enough of a hymn that even the non-Christians can probably sing along. They kept that momentum going the entire night. And then the second morning, when people came out onto the street again, surprisingly, they found out that there still exists a sizable group of people who were sitting in front of the local government's building, who was making democratic demands. And they thought, wow, if the church can do it, so can we. And then from that moment onward, the momentum picked up and up and until it eventually reached about a total number of demonstrators of two millions a month later. That's like a quarter of the total population of Hong Kong when you think about it. It's absolutely incredible. And uh, that student told me that I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the church saved this entire democracy demonstration. Not only saved it, but it played a role in witnessing this demonstration to become one of the largest in human history and certainly the largest in Chinese history. And the, the sound of hallelujah to the Lord just echoes throughout the demonstration. The reason being, there is a very tactical concern uh, because hallelujah, uh, because according to Hong Kong constitution, religious freedom is guaranteed. So that if they sing this hymn, the demonstrators can proclaim that, oh, I'm here for a religious gathering. I'm not really here as a political protester. So the, you, you cannot crush us. And that did offer very tangible protection because the police was already using military-grade tear gas and rubber bullets on people and has, has, has killed up, um, up about five and, and permanently injured many more. So literally, the sound of hallelujah to the Lord is a shield of protection 
for those who are powerless, who are squashed between a highly demanding political and economic power, yet who still want to make their voice known and to still counter the encroachment of this big power. The, son, the, the voice, when we hear hallelujah to the Lord, and this is one atheist commenting on social media, when I hear hallelujah to the Lord, I know that there is hope. And uh, th the church that, that my friend serves have seen two, uh, you may, two conversions in one day, just before he left Hong Kong. Two atheists who think that, who, who want to give their life to Jesus and to the church because in their own words, I have thought wrong about Christianity. So when we look at so 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 when we look look to the world, this kind of uh, imagination that the gospel is an entire kingdom breaking into ours is not rare at all. And I wager, what if we think about the gospel in that way? But on the other hand, we also sh I should also be very clear to say that the gospel is good not because it simply subscribes to what our world considers to be a good thing, and it's good insofar as it supports that cause. I don't think that's the case either, because we all know each age, each country has certain values that it thinks is absolutely beyond reproach and beyond critique. However, I think the gospel has its own agenda in mind, and it's many values that our society think are good now, in fact, are not very good. So what are, what are some ways that a gospel can challenge us? I will name one thing, and it's one verse that really speaks to me. Towards the end of that whole passage, before I said finally, uh, Jesus, uh, all the 72 come back. They were really happy. Hey, the evil spirits, the demons submit to us. When we, ex when we exercise them, they are gone. But what did Jesus say? Rejoice not that evil spirits submit to you, Rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. What does that mean? It means to me that the, the final victory is not simply that we have destroyed our opponents, but that we are part of something even better. And that verse showed to me that Jesus does not subscribe to a dualistic thinking, a kind of an enemy-us uh, dichotomy. Not, and the goal of a Christian witness, the kingdom breaking in, is not simply to destroy those with whom we disagree. And if we can even take that ethic into our witness, I think that would have already put us quite above the, the ethics of many political movements today. Both on the left and on the right, we very often hear this kind of voice that the problem is with the other group of people. If only this other group of people does not exist, if only those narrow-minded, backward, misguided people don't exist, the world will be so much better. And you know, I used to think like that. In a conference that I went to several, uh, several uh, half a year ago, um, I was just starting my PhD career. I was quite ambitious. So, I, so on that conference, I gathered several professors to sit with me for lunch. And I boldly told them, you know what, guys? I think I want to dedicate my PhD career into deconstructing and critiquing secularism. And uh, part of me was thinking, yeah, they are the problem. The secularists, they are the problem. But after I said that, an old and very achieved professor told me, uh, uh, Dr. Dana Roberts, some of you may even know her, she told me that, Yuchao, if that's really what you want to do, then you should start building bridges. I was like, well, yeah, I'm building bridges. I have you over for lunch. 
And she's like, no, 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 no. You build bridges with the secularists that you think are the problem. And that for me was quite counterintuitive. What? I need to build bridges with them? But then I realized, hey, Dr. Roberts has been in, this, in the field for more than 50 years. One of the high, most respected and achieved scholars in the field. Is that what she's saying? And she said, yes. In fact, that is what I'm saying. You do not change the world by squashing your opponents or, or destroying them in your papers or, uh, uh, or dismantling their arguments with your books. There might be a place for that, but it only serves the ultimate goal of building bridges with them. And I was quite touched by that. In a semester to came, in a semester that came, I did manage to build some bridges with uh, some known atheist and secular professors in my department. And uh, surprise as he may, I did see a very obvious change of heart and attitude uh, the, uh, on their part towards theology and towards the church. As if through me, through many who made a witness like me, they began to realize that, oh, my opponents, uh, the Christians that I love dashing out, dishing out critiques on, are not homogenous. There are people in there who are also bridge builders. And thus bridge, br bridges are built. And uh, perhaps that is the way, that's the more long-term way that the gospel gradually moves forward, the kingdom gradually moves forward. Because as the 72 did, as they were sent out, peace and healing were part, were part, of, the package, part of the package of them sharing the good news. So the gospel is good then, that it can change the world, that it has changed the world and it will if we let it. It is the foundation of the sacredness of life. It is the foundation for not adopting a destructive antagonism, but a bridge-building peacemaking. But if the gospel is so good, am I the person to, to share it? How do we share it? I once had the same doubt when I was in my undergrad campus ministry, because back then the mode of sharing the gospel is usually that you create a very high-energy social event and you meet more people, and in there you hopefully gradually slip in the question, accept Jesus. And, uh, you know, I never excelled in a high-energy social situation. Um, I, I, I am a rather low... And, well, my, my energy does not tend to externalize, externalize itself very, uh, very readily. And uh, I, 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 I prefer reading and thinking about stuff uh, before I share them. Which I, and because of that, I was often told that I lack boldness for the kingdom of God. So when I left my undergrad campus ministry and I went to New York City, Columbia University for my previous master, I was in uh, the, the, the goal of sharing the gospel was not on my mind in the slightest because I was very convinced that I must not be a very good evangelist because good evangelists are like a Billy Graham type of people, like the high-energy social, uh, socializers. I'm not that. So, well, I guess that's just not going to be a way where I serve God. But to my surprise, but when circumstances led me to lead a Bible study for Chinese international students, for seekers. And uh, I was expecting, well, okay, I'll do it once a week. Maybe three or four people will come. In the end, within the first month, the group grew to about 20 people. 
and to, uh, with the exception of uh, two believers, me and my co-leader, the, all the 18 rest of them were non-believers who want to know more about Jesus, who want to know more about the church. And at its peak, the group reached about 35 to 40. And uh, uh, two people come to know the Lord through this ministry, and uh, the seed was planted in dozens more. And uh, so it got so popular that uh, one time I was walking on campus, and a student in my department came and said, hey, don't you do that Bible study thing? I want to be a part of it. And now that was entirely unexpected because I believe that I was a failed evangelist. I could never be good at those, doing this kind of stuff. But then I realized that all the time I spent in reading and thinking about those questions were preparations to answer the same kind of questions that the Chinese seekers would then raise. So that by the time when I got to Columbia, after several years of being an introverted failed evangelist, I, I all of a sudden was transformed into the exactly the kind of evangelist that is needed in that kind of environment. When, when we have fresh international students coming from China and all over the world, never heard of the, well, either have never heard of Jesus or have been given a highly biased and mistaken portrayal of him, and they are eager to find out more. And here was I, a person who went through exactly the same process and have thought about more. And I felt a relief and a redemption. I was not a failed evangelist after all. And the reason why I was not a failed evangelist, and the reason why none of us is a failed evangelist, is because when we think of the gospel as kingdom breaking in to our imminent world and coming close, that kingdom incorporates so much. The kingdom needs so many talents that I am convinced not one of us is excluded from this process. If you're extroverted, great. But if you're introverted, the kingdom also needs thinkers. If you're good at chef, the kingdom also needs chefs. If you're good at healing, the kingdom also needs healers. And if you're good at counseling, the kingdom also needs counselors. In whatever we do, in whatever career track that we find ourselves, I am convinced that the kingdom needs to go there and the kingdom can expand there. So not, not all of us are called to be full-time evangelists, but all of us are called to be full-time evangelists in the sense that wherever we go, we bring the kingdom with us. Earlier, I had one friend from InterVarsity, her, her name is Weiwei, and uh, she was discerning whether she should become a full-time evangelist. She decided no, she become a pharmacist. But as a pharmacist, she began to uh, realized then how incredibly expensive pres prescription drugs can be for those who have limited access to health insurance. And uh, uh, she began to start a little system of her own that began to provide accessible, affordable medicine for those who need it. And it, because she specializes in urology, uh, she eventually received a nickname called the P-Angel from, <laughs> from, from people who come to her. And many of these people, they did not grow up in church. They had no idea uh, what an angelology is. But when they see her, when they see the thing that she is doing, they just realize this must be an angelic presence here that I am feeling. That's, that's, imagine if we have 100 more people like her, 
maybe that would be the beginning of a systematic and a structural change to our medical care system that would make it much more affordable and much more accessible to, the, to those with limited resources. If we had a hundred more like her in a teaching position, if we have a thousand like her in academia, imagine how much our world is going to be changed for the better and how much the kingdom of God is going to come forth. And that starts with us. That starts with us. And as we go out from this weekend, this church, to the places that where we are, I want us to think and to proclaim, at least in our hearts, if not with our lips, that the kingdom of God has come near. When we go to our lab, the kingdom of God has come near. When we go to our classrooms, whether as a student or as a teacher, the kingdom of God has come near. When we go to our kitchen, go to our family dinners, the kingdom of God has come near. When we go to our lunch meetings with our friends, the kingdom of God has come near. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the kingdom of God really has come near. And Jesus is calling all of us to be part of this process. Let's all join him and let's all join me and us in prayer for that. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for, for being the initiator to the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. We ask that the kingdom of God will come. Please come near to us wherever we are, because that's how you meet us. In this church, surely, in this neighborhood, on this street, in our gardens, in our kitchens, in our classrooms, in our labs, in wherever we find ourselves. Lord, I pray that you will equip each and every member here with the, with the boldness to proclaim the kingdom of God, the wisdom in understanding what it is, and the love, the capacity for love, to let healing and let peace go ahead of us wherever we go. And wherever we go, we will be a living demonstration that the kingdom of God has come near. Make each one of us piercing points through which a new kingdom pierces through our dead and insolent world. Let this barrier of secularism break and shatter in front of your light. And, let, and, and let's make this world a truly a land where God's presence is always seen. Prepare us, prepare us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.